Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Spatial Receptive Field Structure of Double Opponent Cells in Macaque V1. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and Dr. Greg Horowitz. So let's get started. Hello, everybody. Hi, Greg. It's wonderful that you're participating on our session today. And I can't tell you, I was very fascinated by your paper in particular because it tells us, you know, like about the role of uh, mathematical models in visual neuroscience and how you can use computational approaches to better understanding visual processing, in your case, particular, you know, spatial processing and the role of chromaticity in spatial processing. But, you know, before we go into the details of your paper, Greg, if you don't mind, can you give the listener or the audience a broader overview about the field, the current state of the research field of spatial processing, and also maybe uh, highlight some of the disagreements in the, and uncertainties in the field so we get an overview. So thanks so much, Greg. Sure. Thank you, Nino. It's great to be here. A wonderful opportunity to speak directly to the readership of the Journal of Neurophysiology. Uh, so, so this is the latest chapter in an ongoing story from my lab and others on the processing of color information in the primary visual cortex of the macaque monkey. The area V1 is the primary visual cortex. And area V1 is arguably one of the best studied areas of macaque cortex. We know a great deal about how orientation is represented there and motion direction and binocular disparity. As evidenced by quantitative models that actually predict with good accuracy how individual neurons respond to various visual patterns. Uh, so that's a real victory. But the processing of color really lags behind. We don't have that same degree of quantitative understanding about how color is represented. And so that's uh, something that we've been working on for quite a while. And as you said at the very beginning, mathematical models are really critical to this endeavor. And so one of the things we would like to do is to be able to construct mathematical models for particular types of neurons in V1 that are thought to be important for color processing. And double opponent neurons are certainly one of those cell types. Fantastic, Greg. Now, one of the questions that as a neurophysiologist is important for us is, you know, how does the neurophysiology relate to the perception, like in particular, like how do these receptive fields lead to the perception of 2D spatial structure or the 3D spatial perception? And, uh, and I think you mentioned in your paper also that sometimes you suppress the 3D perception to process information. So could you elaborate a little bit on this? Sure, yeah, so to, to really answer that question clearly, um, I might have to go on a little bit of a tangent and, and talk a little bit about what these double repotent cells are and how they're defined and how they respond to visual stimuli. Uh, okay, so to get there, um, I have to first explain what opponency is more broadly. So opponency is a, a property of a visual neuron and a visual neuron is declared to be opponent if it's excited by a visual stimulus and then suppressed by that same visual stimulus having, having been put through a simple transformation. And a, a clear intuitive example of this is the spatial opponency exhibited by simple cells in V1. Now, simple cells are sort of the quintessential V1 cell type. We know an awful lot about them. And one of the things that we know is that they respond to an optimally oriented bar of light in their receptive fields at some location, uh, specifically the, the on subregion 
simple cells have receptive fields that are comprised of on and off subregions. And if you put a bright bar on an on subregion, then by definition, the neuron responds, it's excited. Now, if you simply translate that bar over a little bit to the off subregion, the neuron becomes suppressed. So that's spatial opponency. Uh, the stimulus has been put through a small transformation and the neuron's response has changed in sign. Cone opponency is a distinct but related kind of opponency that relates to the kind of inputs that a neuron receives from the three types of cone photoreceptor at the back of the retina. So all vision at high light levels in macaque monkeys and most humans start with the absorption of light by three classes of cone photoreceptor with different spectral sensitivities. And it's actually by comparing the excitation across these three cone classes that we're able to see color. If we only had a single type of cone, we couldn't discriminate a change in wavelength from a change in light intensity and we would be colorblind. But by comparing signals across cone types, we can see color. Now it turns out that many neurons in the visual system are excited by one cone type and suppressed by another. So that's cone opponency. And the way this manifests is if, you know, for example, you present a long wavelength light in the center of a neuron's receptive field, let's say a 700 nanometer light, something that looks very red, maybe the cell is excited, fires a lot of action potentials. Now you reduce the wavelength to you know, maybe five, 500, 550 nanometers, something that's a little bit greener, and now the cell is suppressed. Why did that happen? Well, it's because that neuron was excited by the long wavelength sensitive cones, but it was suppressed by the medium wavelength sensitive cones. So that's cone opponency. Finally, okay, now getting to, the, to the, the beginning of the answer to your question, a double opponent neuron by definition is spatially opponent and cone opponent. So in a single region of its receptive field, it's excited by one cone type and suppressed by another, but it has the reverse spectral sensitivity elsewhere in its receptive field. So hence double opponency. Okay, so that's a double opponent neuron. Um, you asked about the role of double opponency in perception, which is a matter of intense speculation in the field and uh, unfortunately much, much more speculation than data. But the dominant hypothesis is that these cells might be involved in a, a process called simultaneous color contrast, which is, a lot of words for a phenomenon that I'm sure that you and your listeners have all experienced, which is that a, a gray patch of light surrounded by red looks a little bit green, whereas that same gray patch on a green background looks a little bit red. So in general, an achromatic stimulus surrounded by color takes on the opposite color of the surround. That suggests that there's some sort of mechanism in the brain that is comparing color signals across space and double opponent cells are really uh, well situated to be involved in that kind of computation. And there's, th this model can be made a little bit more formal, but that's one of the things that double opponent cells might be involved in. Having completed the study we're discussing today and some other closely related studies all performed by this fantastic student I had, Abhishek Day, we now think that double opponent cells might be involved in yet other aspects of perception. For example, as you alluded to, seeing depth in monocular images. The, the pattern of light on the retina, the retina is of course two-dimensional. And so the uh, visual image on a single retina is, is two-dimensional. By comparing images across retinas, you can get some impression of depth from binocular disparity. But even with a single eye, there are lots of cues to depth. 
And one of those has to do with variations in shading over a surface. Now I'm going to try to describe for you a, a beautiful image from a paper from, from Stephen Zucker at Yale University who came by our poster at the Society for Neuroscience uh, several years ago and really spurred a lot of our thinking about this um, in which uh, he's got a mango, a half ripened mango under a light source coming from above. So uh, if you can just imagine this, uh, the top of the mango is brighter than the bottom because the mango was curved in depth. It's got a three-dimensional structure and the bottom is in shadow. So there's a luminance gradient. It's a vertically oriented uh, because of the position of the light source. Orthogonal to that, there is a chromatic gradient because the mango is only half ripe and part of it is red and part of it is green. And because the chromatic gradient and the luminance gradient are orthogonal, we perceive a fruit that varies in pigment and is in, uh, and is, and half of it is in direct light and half of it is in shadow. So we perceive that as a three-dimensional object. Now, Zucker has some beautiful synthetic images that he's created where he aligns and misaligns chromatic and luminance gradients. And perceptually, the three-dimensional impression one gets is completely different. When the luminance and chromatic gradients are aligned, then what you see is something that looks very flat, just sort of a, a colorful picture, like maybe an, an oil slick, where the variations in luminance and the variations in color are together, and it looks like the paint has changed. When he changes the orientation of the gradients, so the color is changing in one direction and luminance is changing in another direction, suddenly the image pops out in depth. And all the luminance variations are attributed to shadows because the surface is uh, varying in depth and the color changes are interpreted as changes in the material or the pigment. Now we think that double opponent cells, by, by virtue of the studies that Avishek has done in my lab, we think that double opponent cells could be involved in that process because they're not only sensitive to the uh, difference in color between two neighboring regions of an image, but they're also sensitive to the orientation of that difference. And that's what allows you to estimate the direction of the gradient. Very cool. You know, uh, Greg, my brother is a painter and he paints portraits. And for him, you know, like how to represent and re recover, you know, the 3D dimension of, of a person's face is big art because, you know, like you have to use these different colors to get the depth into this painting. And he told me like, it drives him crazy. Like the skin of a 40 year old and a 50 year old and 60 year old are all different. And so he has to play with these colors and he cannot just say like vein is blue or something. He has to create the blueness of the vein in the painting by taking different colors. So I think this was fascinating how, how you explained it now. And I have a very simple experience, also experience to that because I you know, used to do experiments till three, four o'clock in the morning, staring on a green oscilloscope all the time. And then when I come home, everything was pink, you know, and I, I didn't know, you know, is the world suddenly pink because I had a good experiment or is it like a <laughs> my double opponent cells? So probably it's the double opponent cells playing some games with me. So Greg, I think what, comes out of this is also that you're dealing with a lot of dimensions, you know, like lots of variables. So the methods, the experimental approach to characterize them must be extremely complicated. Can you tell us a little bit how you tackle, tackle this, this complex variables here in characterizing these cells? Sure. So one of the approaches that we took in this study was to make as few assumptions as possible about 
what aspects of the incoming light pattern the neuron was responsive to. So this is a bit of a break from tradition because a standard approach in visual neurophysiology is the tuning curve measuring method where one establishes a set of stimuli that are parametrized by one or two dimensions, maybe the orientation of a bar and the width of a bar, that would be two dimensions. And then you stimulate the neuron with all possible orientations and bar widths and see how response changes as a function of those two variables. Well, that's an approach that works great when you know which particular variables you're interested in. But if you wanna be a little bit more agnostic about what the neuron might be encoding as we were, uh, you might wanna use a, the approach that we use, which is the white noise approach. So all of our experiments were done in awake fixating monkeys. So the monkey fixated a black dot on a gray computer screen and we lowered an electrode down into a chronic craniotomy, taking advantage of the fact that there's no pain receptors in the brain. So the, the monkey is unaware that we're uh, inserting the electrode and continues to perform the behavior. And each time we isolate an action potential from a neuron, we map its receptive field roughly with bars of light as is standard in the field, and then position a grid of randomly colored squares on top of uh, at that location where the receptive field is located. Now this stimulus is created by just randomly changing the three color channels of our display, the red, green, and blue color channels in, in all of our computer displays, completely randomly and independently across space and time. So we're essentially just putting random noise into the visual system. And sometimes just by chance, we stumble on a pattern that causes the neuron to fire an action potential. And when that happens, we extract those frames immediately preceding the action potential because we know that something happened in a random stimulus movie that excited the neuron and we wanna figure out what it was. Now there's a variety of ways that we can analyze the data, but the simplest way and the way that we used for the experiments in the paper that, uh, that Abhishek wrote was spike triggered averaging. So we literally averaged together all of the stimuli that drove a spike. And that gives us a little picture, which under important assumptions describes the stimulus tuning of the neuron. Uh, a bit of an aside, but because I have the opportunity right now, I've got to do it. The term receptive field um, is used to mean two different things in visual neurophysiology to the detriment, I think, of progress occasionally. Uh, the original definition, of course, is the region of space, in this case, visual, or the corresponding region on the sensory epithelium, in this case, the retina, uh, where a stimulus causes a change in the activity of the recorded neuron. That's one classical definition of the receptive field. But empirically, it turns out that in the visual system, at least, many neurons are responsive to respond with one polarity, increased action potentials to stimulation in one location, and then decreased action potentials somewhere else. And so then the receptive field gets partitioned up into subregions, which are you know, on and off subregions, regions where the neuron is excited by light or suppressed by light. And those subregions are together called the receptive field. But really there's something else. There's something that lives inside the receptive field and they're a description of what the neuron responds to. And it's only a very select type of neuron whose sensitivity is sufficiently simple that it can be described with a little picture like that. Most neurons have complicated stimulus selectivity that you can't draw with a simple picture. They still have receptive fields, but it's important to keep that distinction in mind because we in this paper only looked at the simple type of neuron where you can 
describe their stimulus activity with a little picture. And it's that little picture that we derived by spike triggered averaging and then analyzed. Greg, this is a, a perfect answer that leads to the next question. You know, and, and as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a beautiful example of how do you use mathematical models in visual neuroscience. So, so you mentioned that in your study, you, you compare two models, like one is the Gabor model, and then the other one is your difference of Gaussian or the dog model. Can you explain this to us and, and also how this helped you to better understand, you know, the processing of all these different variables and components? Sure. So the Gabor model and the difference of Gaussian's model are two classic mathematical descriptions of the receptive field of a visual neuron. Receptive field here in the second sense, meaning that little picture that describes the response properties of a cell to different types of visual stimuli. Uh, why do we think it's important to do this at all, by the way? As I mentioned at the very beginning of this, we have a, a reasonable definition of understanding a system is if one can describe it mathematically. For one thing, that allows you to make predictions about how the system will respond to inputs that haven't yet been tried. And the model and a rigorous mathematical model is a falsifiable one, and that's important for scientific progress. We have that for orientation and binocular disparity in motion, and we don't have it for color. That was the direction of this uh, experiment. So the Gabor model is of a mathematical function. It's just a sine wave that's been multiplied by a Gaussian. And that's a model that's been used widely to describe the receptive fields of simple cells. And it captures their orientation and spatial frequency selectivity. That's two important aspects of a simple cell. A difference of Gaussians is a model that's been used for neurons to describe the receptive fields of neurons at many stages of the primate visual system, originally in the retina, but also in the LGN and, and also in the visual cortex. And that model is literally just what the name says, the difference of two Gaussians, a narrow Gaussian at the center of the receptive field that describes the response of the center and a broader one that describes the response of the surround. Now, a critical difference between these two models is that the Gabor model assumes orientation specificity and the difference of Gaussians assumes a lack of orientation specificity. So when we began these experiments, uh, we were interested in what had already been discovered about the receptive field organization of double opponent cells and found that the early descriptions were all in terms of center surround, which would comport with a difference of Gaussians model. And then later reports were some hybrid between a difference of Gaussians, which is not orientation uh, selective, and something that's a little bit more orientation selective, like a center and a displaced surround. And then finally, there were reports of a very orientation tuned double opponent cells. Although uh, in, in some of those studies, the definition of double opponent cells was sufficiently broad that it included cells that would not have been considered double opponent by our studies or by some of the classic ones. So for methodological reasons, the, the definition of double opponency and the particular stimuli that were used cast a little bit of doubt as to what the exact receptive field architecture looked like. So we revisited this question with the um, white noise stimulus that I described to you earlier, which is unbiased and gives us a nice picture of what the receptive field looks like, and then fit the resulting images with the difference of Gaussians and the Gabor model. And of course, both models fit reasonably well. And comparing these models is non-trivial because they have different numbers of parameters and the parameters mean totally different things. So it's really apples and oranges, but Abhishek compared those two models using well-vetted rigorous statistical comparison procedures 
and determined that the Gabor model, no matter how he sliced the data, the Gabor model was the superior of the two. And so if there's any computer vision folks listening to this podcast, I would strongly advocate that you use the Gabor model to model uh, double opponent cell receptive fields over the widely used uh, difference of Gaussians. Uh, one more thing I'll just throw into that with regard to the shape from shading computation I alluded to earlier, that really requires an oriented color difference detector. And the Gabor model is an oriented color difference detector. The difference of Gaussians is not. And so the fact that the Gabor model fits better than the difference of Gaussians suggests that double opponent cells could be involved in the shape from shading computation. Correct. That was very helpful. And, and I really now I have to go back to the paper and, and totally understand it. It's, it's fantastic. Now, um, what's heroic about your study is that, you, of course, you, you work in awake monkeys. And to what extent do eye movements now affect the response pattern of these neurons? And is this dynamically regulated? Does it play a role? in spatial perception? Yeah, so eye movements are a major issue for us. And this is something that we grapple with constantly. So our, our monkeys are rewarded for keeping their eyes fixated on a rather small black dot in the center of a computer screen. But even when we're maintaining uh, steady fixation, human or monkey, the eyes are never completely stationary. There are several distinct forms of eye movement that occur, uh, tremor, drift, and microsaccades. First of all, we can't get rid of those movements. There's no way to train a monkey completely out of making those movements any more than there's a way of training a human not to make those movements. But what we can do is measure them to the best of our ability and explore to what degree those movements affect our data. And then we are very careful not to draw interpretations from our data that could be affected by the eye movements. So yeah, the eye movements are a major issue. We can't train the monkey not to make them, but we can measure them and be careful not to draw inferences from our data that could be a result of eye movements. Um, and in a sense, you know, these eye movements are more of a feature than a bug in the sense that under natural circumstances, uh, the visual system has to contend with eye movements all the time. Our eyes are making saccades about three times a second under normal circumstances. And we've actually been able to use the measured eye movements to good effect if we're just trying to study the mapping between visual stimuli and neuronal responses, then eye movements are a problem that we have to contend with. But if we can measure eye movements very precisely, that opens up the door to measuring the relationship between visual stimuli and eye movements, and also neural responses and eye movements. And there are interesting relationships in both of those domains. So we found, for example, that the uh, a transient change in luminance of a stimulus can actually invoke an eye movement with latency of about 60 milliseconds, which really limits the amount of cortical circuitry that could be involved. Um, perhaps there's none. Uh, we also found that the response of cortical neurons exhibits a transient burst and then dip around the time of individual eye movements, which is uh, a complication to neurophysiological investigation, but is something that the brain has to deal with and actually might be a really important part of how vision works. Great. You know, in your final figure, Greg, you uh, have a circuit diagram, you know, that explains how the differential properties of the DO cells and the simple cells are explained by, by inputs from the LGN. Uh, could you elaborate, you know, how you think the circuitry actually plays a role in, in the processing of this information? Sure. So we are really standing on the shoulders of giants here in the sense that we are basically taking a model that is the fruit of a tremendous amount of theoretical and experimental work 
mostly on simple cells in CAD and showing that that same model can be used to describe the response properties of double opponent cells. So our contention is that, well, first of all, our contention is that double opponent cells classically defined may not be a unitary entity, but there may be several distinct types, but at least one type has the following properties that they're well described, they're, they have receptive fields that are well described as Gabor patterns, and they seem to integrate visual information roughly linearly across their receptive fields. Uh, these are the same two properties that, that simple cells share. Simple cells are distinct from double opponent cells, largely in the sense that they pool information from at least two and maybe all three cone types with the same sign. So they lack the cone opponency that is a defining property of double opponent cells but they are still spatially opponent. And the way they achieve this spatial opponency is thought to be as follows. They pool information from LGN afferents with different sign in different parts of their receptive field. Now, for this to make sense, you have to understand that there's many different types of afferents from the LGN coming into layer uh, 4C of V1. But just to simplify things, we're going to think about the largest population of those, which is the parvocellular neurons. But even within the parvocellular population, there's four distinct types of afferents. And these are defined physiologically on the basis of the cone type that dominates the center. So neurons in the lateral geniculate nucleus have a center surround receptive field organization, and they're strongly dominated by the center under the adaptation conditions that we use. So these neurons can be defined as L on, which is to say they respond to an increase in long wavelength sensitive cone activation. L off, they respond to a decrease in long wavelength sense of cone activation, or M on and M off. Same thing, but for the medium wavelength sensitive cones. So those are the four types of afferents coming into V1 from the lateral geniculate. L on, L off, M on, M off. Now, if a V1 cell pools L on signals and M on signals from one part of the visual field and adds them together, and then combines L off signals and M off signals, from a neighboring part of the receptive field and adds them together, now that neuron is going to behave sort of like a simple cell. It will respond to increases in light in one side of the receptive field and decreases in light on the other. There's a minor detail that's actually sort of important that in addition to having excitation from those afferents, you also have inhibition from the opposite collection as described in the paper. For the purposes of this podcast, maybe that's too much to go into, but that provides the linearity that is a defining characteristic of simple cells. Our contention is that double opponent cells can be wired up in essentially the same way, but instead of pairing L on signals with M on, we pair L on signals with M off signals. And in the other side of the receptive field, we pair M on signals with L off signals. And that creates a neuron that has the same spatial opponency as a simple cell, but now, also exhibits cone opponency because it's excited by one cone class and suppressed by another. So we think simple cells and double opponent cells uh, really might be essentially the same cell type with this minor tweak to the circuitry. And that's motivating us to think that the downstream processing of simple cell and double opponent cell responses could also be very similar. And that's something that we're actively pursuing. Wow, Greg, fantastic. You know. Um these non-human primates are great to study in the awake animal because you can train the mouse, uh, the mouse, the, the macaque. Now, they are much more difficult, however, to do circuit analysis using, for example, optogenetics and viral vector. But I think this is now the next step. You know, can you 
unravel this underlying circuitry using these technologies and and also uh, maybe transcriptomics to identify cell identity and and how they work together and are like are the simple cells and the bo cells really the same cells are there different types or something so so what can you tell us about this and i know that you're kind of a leader in in advancing this technology so please go ahead greg yeah so this is a something that we're deeply deeply interested in and are actively collaborating with jonathan ting and the leads group at the allen institute for brain science to try to develop reagents viral vectors for the selective transduction of particular transcriptomically defined cell types in animals like macaque monkeys um, for a variety of reasons, one of which is to explore this relationship that you alluded to between physiological, physiologically defined cell types and transcriptomically defined cell types. So that's, to my mind, one of the big open questions that is just on the cusp of being answerable with available technology. For the longest time, we've been able to record from neurons and characterize them physiologically. And we go back and forth sometimes about exactly how these categories ought to be defined. Um, but we're sort of zeroing in on uh, at least a few types of neurons that we all agree on. But now we're realizing that there's many different types of neurons in V1 transcriptomically defined. And whether the transcriptomic types map onto the physiological types is, is something that we've got to uh, tackle. Now, some of this work has been done in the mouse and there are interesting relationships between transcriptomics and physiology, but the physiological types in the mouse cortex are difficult in some cases to map onto the physiological types in the monkey. And specifically with regard to color, because the organization of color, even in the retina of the mouse is quite different than in the monkey. Uh, the comparisons are fraught. So our hope is to develop viruses that will selectively transduce, for example, parvalbumin-expressing inhibitory interneurons, or ideally one of the 10 subtypes of parvalbumin-expressing inhibitory interneurons, cause them to express, for example, channel rhodopsin 2, and then record from neurons, illuminate them, and be able to determine that way whether we're recording from one of these special parvalbumin-expressing neurons or a different type and then characterize the neuron physiologically using light stimuli. Um, it would be fantastic if it turned out that, for example, simple cells and complex cells were of different transcriptomic types. Um, it would at least raise the possibility that we could do experiments like turning off simple cells and seeing how complex cells respond or vice versa. Um, but the possibility remains that there are types of cells that are distinct physiologically, uh, maybe grossly so, but identical transcriptomically. And uh, that would be the, the result of all the circuitry that exists between the photoreceptors and the V1 neurons under consideration. That's complicated stuff. And there's every reason to believe that that's what underlies many of the differences in uh, visual receptive field properties. Well, Greg, I, I'm not sure whether this is too early to ask, but I mean, I know that the Allen Institute is also looking at uh, the human cells and characterization of individual neuron types, etc. To what extent do you think is the macaque more similar to the human situation compared to, let's say, to the mouse or something? Or, or are we now speculating too early on now? No, I think that this is exactly the right time to be speculating on this. The, the folks at the Allen have done some of those comparative studies, and I, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing the results, but the human and the macaque are much closer 
than the human and the mouse. And I think perhaps even more close than the macaque to the mouse. So there's a reasonable correspondence in the temporal lobe between cell types in the human and in the macaque. It's a little bit tricky to identify the homologous area between human and macaque, but just based on gross anatomical landmarks, uh, sections can be excised and subjected to single cell RNA sequencing. And there's a pretty good correspondence between those two data sets. Uh, I think the, the mouse understandably, or uh, as perhaps expected, is more different. Cool. Thanks, Greg. Now, let me push it even one step further here, because, you know, visual neuroscience has been at the forefront of understanding, you know, cortical processing in general. And I mean, that's why the Allen Institute invested a lot of uh, time and, and energy to, to understand the visual cortex and particularly the area of V1. Now, could you talk maybe in more general terms how you think neurons compute quantities that are important, for example, for guidance behaviors? And what features of you know, visual processing do you think are, will be best and perhaps easiest to crack? And what will be the most difficult aspects of, of processing here that, that we have to face and solve? Sure. Well, actually, one of the reasons that I'm attracted to the problem of color processing in V1 is because I think of it as the premier system for understanding computation by neurons. Ultimately, what the brain does is to take sensory information and processes those physical signals into those that are appropriate for guiding behavior. And perception is a phenomenon that we all experience that is produced through that chain of events. So how are we going to understand how it is that these neurons compute what they compute in order to guide behavior? Well, to my mind, we should start with a circuit that we understand at least reasonably well um, and that could be the, the color vision system. We know a tremendous amount about how color is processed in the retina because we know the spectral sensitivity of the cones. We know some of the initial stages of cone opponency whereby individual neurons compare signals across cone types. I mentioned earlier that that comparison is critical for how we see color. And then the signals come up to the visual cortex. Uh, we understand a good deal about how those signals are carried in the afferents and suddenly everything gets mixed together in complex ways that are systematic, but incompletely understood. And there seems to be a few canonical computations that are going on in primary visual cortex that may actually extend beyond primary visual cortex, but even within the primary visual cortex, across modalities, there's an amazing degree of conservation. For example, there exist populations of neurons that compare signals across space in a roughly linear way. If those are luminance signals, then we call them simple cells. If they're comparing cone opponent signals, we call them double opponent cells. That's sort of the essence of this paper. Um, but then further downstream, there are additional computations that go on. For example, taking several of these linear spatial differencing operators, squaring their output and adding them together. Now, it's not obvious that that should be a useful thing to do, but it actually is. It allows you to identify the orientation of edges irrespective of their contrast polarity or exactly where the edge is located. This is essentially what a complex cell does. And so what I just sort of said in words is the essence of the energy model of complex cells. And that same complex cell energy model describes the uh, spatial phase invariance of complex cells. It explains their sensitivity to binocular stimuli. 
Um, and now we're discovering that it also explains their color sensitivity because if you simply take simple cells, square their output and add them together, you make a luminance sensitive complex cell. But if in addition, you take double opponent cell input, square it and add them together, you make a color sensitive complex cell. Those cells exist. There's a completely non-trivial prediction about what colors such a neuron ought to be sensitive to. Uh, we've tested that prediction and it turns out to be true. And so we think that this basic idea of taking the outputs of linear filters, squaring them and adding them together is a canonical computation that B1 does in the service of many different aspects of vision. Hopefully that general concept carries on to other parts of the brain, but that's an empirical question that remains to be uh, addressed rigorously. Now you also asked what aspects of the computations are going to be the most difficult to grapple with. Well, in vision, one of the things that we're constantly dealing with is that it's relatively easy to, to think about manipulations of neural signals and the physical signals that give rise to those neural signals. But ultimately what we'd like to understand is perception. And perception is very subjective. It's hard to study in humans and it's even more challenging to study in a non-human primate where the, the bandwidth for behavioral communication is relatively low. We can't ask the monkey uh, what color it sees. But there are behavioral tricks that we can play to try to get a sense of what color a, a monkey sees. So for example, we've trained a monkey to discriminate uh, gray squares from colored squares. And then we've played some tricks by changing the background. And as I mentioned earlier, a gray square on a colored background can look a little colorful uh, to humans. It turns out it's also true that it looks a little colorful to monkeys. And so by playing tricks like that, we might be able to get a handle on the relationship between the color responses of neurons and the color behavior of monkeys. Perfect. So we're coming back to the original question, you know, how does neurophysiology relate to perception and how we can kind of crack that code between the two. So it's fascinating. I think that that gave us a clear insight and, and, and where we're going to. Now, it's very nice to get also some background to your study. So could you, Greg, give us a little bit of an idea of why and how you designed this study like you did? And also what the role of your team was in your discoveries, because you mentioned already some of the key players here. Yeah, so this was really Abhishek Day's Uh, work entirely. He came into the lab, was interested in using mathematical models to understand processing in the early visual system. And the project that he gravitated to was to answer the question, do double opponent cells integrate information linearly across their receptive fields? So we know that simple cells integrate information roughly linearly across their receptive fields. And if it's really true that double opponent cells are just like simple cells with a flip in the cone sign, then they ought to share that property. So the experiment that he devised involved measuring the spatial receptive field of the double opponent cell and then partitioning the receptive field into two regions that he could then separately stimulate. So for example, presenting a red stimulus on one side and a green stimulus on the other, or a bright green stimulus on one side and an unsaturated green stimulus on the other side and so forth, to try to see how excitation produced by one stimulus traded off with suppression on the other side. Are these things combining linearly or through some other mathematical function? To achieve that, to conduct that experiment, he first had to understand the spatial receptive field structure of the cells 
Otherwise, there would be no way to stimulate the two different parts of the receptive field. And so that got us going down this rabbit hole of looking into the literature and seeing what was already known about double opponent cells, realizing that some of the early studies specified a center surround organization, but used a, a disk that changed in size. So that's a, a one parameter family of, of stimuli. It, it would be difficult to discriminate a center surround organization from anything else using that, that stimulus. And then looked at more modern studies, which uh, I mentioned before, came up with different ideas about what the spatial structure of these receptive fields were. And we figured that the stimulus that we were using was arguably one of the best for getting an unbiased look at these receptive fields. And so that's what launched this direction of research. Greg, I have to say that, look, for me, that the nicest thing is of running a lab is that you have this privilege to work with these highly intelligent people that come with their own ideas. And I think it's it's you have the same experience and uh, we're lucky to have this situation. And uh, so what are the next steps from here? Where do you want to go? Yeah, so one of the there's a, a few directions to go. One I sort of alluded to uh, was the behavioral consequences of double opponent cell activation. So what we would love to do in the, the dream world where we have all the technology at our disposal is to selectively activate double opponent cells optogenetically and ask the monkey what it experiences. That's not an experiment that we can realistically do uh, right now. Um, but what we can do instead is to, uh, as I mentioned, trick the monkey into thinking a gray square is colorful by subtly changing the background on which that square is placed. Now, if we position the square such that the edge passes through the receptive field of a double opponent neuron at exactly the right location, and this is something that we are able to do, we can ask whether the change in the monkey's behavior is quantitatively predicted from the change in the response of the neuron. So we can subtly change the background of the display, subtly change the color of the stimulus, change the response of the double opponent neuron, change the behavior of the monkey, and ask whether there's a simple mapping between the two. So that's one future direction. Another that I'm particularly excited about in this is to really test this color energy model that I described earlier, whereby some complex cells respond to the sum of squared output of simple cells and double opponent cells. That model, as I mentioned, makes predictions about the color tuning of complex cells that turns out to be true. So that the model is at least, it has survived one experimental test, but that hardly proves the model. Um, another experimental test, which I think is the more interesting one, is to test the prediction that these complex cells should be invariant to the relative spatial phase of chromatic and luminance modulations. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you take a, a black and white, a series of black and white stripes and a series of colored stripes, we know already that these complex cells will respond to either one of those patterns. They will also respond if you superimpose those patterns. Under the model, you will be able to slide those two patterns past each other and the neuron won't know the difference. If the neuron is only sensitive to the amount of chromatic and luminance contrast energy in the stimulus, their spatial relationship is irrelevant. But the spatial relationship between luminance and chromatic edges in natural scenes is hugely important behaviorally. The world is full of edges. And we all know that V1 is specialized for extracting edges from visual scenes, but not all edges are created equally. Some edges 
are due to things like shadows or the geometry of a scene, the, the curvature of a mango or what have you. But some edges are due to the borders between objects and the background uh, against which they're presented. And so these object boundaries are a very particular kind of edge that the visual system has to extract to do scene segmentation. And where and how that happens is not well understood at all. But one possibility is that a population of complex cells in V1 is the start of that chain of events. If these complex cells are, are particularly sensitive to in-phase modulations of chromatic and luminance modulation, that means that they're particularly sensitive to the, to the superposition of changes in color with changes in luminance. And those are diagnostic of object boundaries. So that's a hypothesis that we'd like to test. Greg, look, I always had the feeling your, your work is cutting edge, but now I, I know why it is cutting edge. It's the edges. Now, Greg, the next question is, what are the important take-home messages that you want the listeners to remember from your paper? Sure. Well, the, the most important take-home message from the paper is very simple. It's that simple cells and double opponent cells are very similar cell types. A, a second order message is that if one is going to do uh, computer models of V1, a Gabor function is an excellent choice for both populations of neurons. Um, but if there's a broader message that I would like to deliver, it's this, that mathematical models, specifically in the context of, of colored neurophysiology, uh, is not just dotting an I or crossing a T, it's actually a necessary step for understanding how color is processed. And, and if I can just unpack that for a second, part of the reason that we understand orientation processing in V1 so well is because orientation is simple. It's one-dimensional and closed. If you take a bar of a particular orientation and rotate it through 180 degrees, you're back where you started, and there's only one parameter to vary, it's orientation. And so, okay, you can't measure the response of a neuron to every conceivable orientation, but you don't have to. You measure the response to maybe eight orientations, and you are sampling a pretty smooth function, and you can interpolate the rest, and now you know how that cell is going to respond to orientations all, the, all around the clock. Color is more complicated. Color is fundamentally a three-dimensional quantity because it starts with the absorption of light by three classes of cone photoreceptor. And for the purposes of talking about color, we can represent any light in a three-dimensional space that's unbounded, where a cone can be very excited or not excited at all. A color tuning curve is essentially a mapping between that three-dimensional space and the spike rate of a neuron. And three dimensions, while not very many, turns out to be a little too much for measuring a tuning curve by brute force. And so there's no way we're going to be able to present every conceivable color to a neuron and measure its output. Um, a computer screen can generate millions of colors. What we need to do is measure the responses to a judiciously selected subset of colors and use those responses to interpolate how the cell would have responded to other colors that we didn't show. Okay, that's pretty clear, but which color should we pick? The answer to that question depends critically on the mathematical function that converts cone signals to the response of the neuron. If you knew that family of functions, you could figure out which stimuli you needed to show to pin down the particular parameters that defined a single neuron under study. But in the absence of such a model, 
we're just uh, adrift. There's any, any number of different stimulus combinations that we might want to test. Um, and there's no way that we can test enough of them that we can be certain that we've pinned down what the neuron is really doing. So the only way to sort of limit the search is by restricting our attention to a subclass of computations that the neuron could be performing. And biology provides the necessary constraints here. We don't have to think about all possible computations that the neuron could be performing because we know a lot about the chain of events from the absorption of light by photoreceptors to the input to the visual cortex from the lateral geniculate nucleus. And because we know that part of the chain, we don't have to characterize the entire chain from light in the eye to a cortical neuron's response. We can just ask about the latter part from LGN input to the cortex to the cortical responses themselves. And that constrains the possible computations that a neuron could be performing. Then that's what we need to be studying. Greg, that's wonderful. And that brings me back to the beginning of, of our session here where you know, the importance of mathematical modeling to understand neural function is so critical. It's there for the visual science. Clearly, like I'm a motor control person, it's there for the motor systems. And then, of course, if you now think about all the intracellular processes going on between these different signaling pathways, it's all about this complexity where only mathematical modeling will help us further. And, uh, and so wonderful that you were able to explain it to me in such a great detail. And I hope that listeners also enjoyed it. And Greg, it was wonderful talking to you. And I hope we keep um, interacting more through your papers and also here in Seattle, of course. So Greg, yes, thank, thank you. you so much. No, thank you, Nino. This was fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk a little bit about Abhishek's work and, uh, and just to talk about color physiology in general. It's stuff that I am really enthusiastic about. Fantastic. And I wish everything great for your student Abacek and uh, hope he gets a fantastic job and, uh, and thanks for being such a great mentor. So all the very best. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.